0: Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor, and Pastor Charles Roberts.
1: Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Out of the Question podcast. Many of you, when you write into to us, give us suggestions, and we have often taken those suggestions, but some people want to know, how do you come up with your topics as if there are not a lot of topics to talk about? Well, little background information, both Charles and I like to read, and we read a wide variety of material, a lot of it theological, a lot of it the works of R.J. Rushdoony, but with current events and various things, we both feel it's important to be informed. However, I'd have to say what we both have in common is that we are dedicated students of R.J. Rush writing. Sometimes I'll be reading something and I'll say, yeah, we really ought to talk about this because the implications of it are really strong. Well, today's topic is one that Charles suggested, and I will let him say what it is and why he thought it would be a fruitful topic. So, Charles, take it away.
0: Thank you, Andrea. And I guess the backdrop to this is several things. First of all, the writings of R.J. Ruffstoney are vast in number and quality. You know, the man wrote so many things, and I think the Calcedon Foundation has done an excellent job in getting most everything that's available, although there still remain many things yet unpublished. So, the multi-volume sets that we recommend of the position papers and everything, uh, the the other things, the devotionals that he did on some radio stations in California, the California Farmer uh, publication, they contain you know short, shorter type dissertations or speeches or essays on various topics, and I was looking for something to key off on for my Sunday evening. October 29th service, which was Reformation Sunday weekend. And so I went to the Calcedon Foundation and used the resort resources application there to look up anything that anyone with the foundation might have written, including, of course, Dr. Rastuni, about Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. And I came across this rather curiously titled article that I had to stop and say, what in the world does this have to do with the Reformation? The title of the article was, a paradise of women. And so uh, that immediately got my attention, thinking, what in the world, like I said, this could have to do with it. And I started reading it and I realized the, the depth of the importance of what Dr. Rastuni was bringing forward. And I think that its significance is such that I, it would be good for us to give it to a wider audience because, you know, every Reformation Sunday weekend, every year, some important things are said and still Bible-believing Protestant pulpits about the five points of the Reformation, the solas of the Reformation, the importance of justification by faith alone, through grace alone, all of these very important subjects. But usually, unfortunately, that's where it's left in a lot of churches. And the implications of the Reformation and the recovery of biblical faith and biblical religion, it has been so profound over the decades and centuries that unless we come up with a full orbed understanding of exactly what happened, not only in terms of reforming doctrine, but how the Reformation and reclaiming scripture affected the day to day lives of ordinary people. Now, Calvin's Geneva, the city in Switzerland where Calvin spent most of his adult life in ministry, you'll find that pilloried by people who hate the Reformed faith and the biblical faith as if Calvin was some sort of evil dictator. He was burning people at the stake left and right. All of these things are either outright lies or gross mischaracters of things that were going on. And so what this essay is about is about the place that women were elevated to, if I can put it that way, from the ordinary semi-pagan society in which they had been living in Europe to where the recovery of biblical faith brought about a massive change in the lives of the women, at least, who lived in Geneva. And Dr. Rostuni makes it a point in this essay to point out that it was specifically the recovery of the whole Bible, the Older Testament and the Newer Testament together, that brought about this Reformation in terms of the, the day-to-day life and the position that women would have. And because Calvin and his associates in Geneva were concerned that they follow the biblical pattern uh, for life and living, as it applied to family life, political life, all of these things, but especially since we're talking on this topic, uh, family life, the ordinary life of women was elevated, as I said, to a place where the bemused and, if not outright offended, people who did not like Calvin and did not like what he was doing—that was the insulting or appropriate term that they came up with to describe Geneva, a paradise of women.
1: So, Rush Dooney begins this position paper with a short paragraph, and I'm going to read it. He says, Slander shifts its ground readily because it is concerned with what will hurt rather than what is true. In different eras, different charges hurt the most. What in one period may be a hurtful accusation may become a compliment in another day. So what was the slander he was talking about in this essay? Well, believe it or not, it has to do with a word that at the time had very complementary and biblically sound meaning, but today has become a byword, and that is patriarchalism.
0: Mm, yes.
1: So we first encounter the word patriarch in scripture. When we talk about the three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, patriarch having to do with fatherhood. So they were the patriarchs of God's Hebrew people that he had called out to be a special people unto himself. And Rushduni points out that what now is male domination and oppression and the subjugation of women was anything but that. He points out that the modern view actually is very male-centered or female-centered when the actual view of patriarchalism was family-centered. And he uses as an example the story that most people will be familiar with when King Ahab wanted a vineyard because he liked it. He offered Naboth a bunch of money, and it was probably a pretty good offer. But Naboth said, I can't do it. This is land that's not just mine. It's been entrusted to me. And as the patriarch of my family, I'm not at liberty to give it away, to sell it. And of course, for his godly recitation of scripture, Queen Jezebel made sure that Naboth quickly got killed. So when we look at patriarchy as this evil I think it's important to realize that it is not a biblical stance to be against the patriarchy. It is a biblical stance to say, is this a proper application of God's word? And then we're going to not so much attack God's word as to say, how should this be applied? And I know you know, Charles, that In secular circles, in Christian circles, oh my goodness, the patriarchy. We've got to be against the patriarchy.
0: Yes, and one of the things that's happened, and I think you alluded to this, is how terms have become redefined or emptied of original meaning and taken out of their context and given a totally different meaning. One of the things that he points out in this article is how authentically, historically understood patriarchal societies were, in fact, family-focused. They weren't male-dominated. That tends to be more a modern reference or a modern phenomenon. And he makes a fascinating point in this article about the differences between having a family-focused, truly patriarchal society versus the, uh, he uses the term, masculinist and feminist societies. And it has to do with the idea of inheritance. Focusing on the succession and future orientation of the family, and in terms of it being part of God's plan for the movement of His kingdom through history, the masculinist and feminist attitudes of of more modern times, based on largely pagan ideas, they may have a veneer of some Christian covering, but they are thoroughly pagan in their ideas about the the differences between the sexes and the you know the, the war between the sexes. I think Dr. Rustini points out that they're Darwinian, really, in their orientation, is the fact that in those ways of thinking, the only thing that matters is the present moment, you know, the the absolute now. The past is irrelevant. The future doesn't matter. I may be dead tomorrow. Let's get it all done and have fun right now and to heck with everything else. That is one of the significant differences in a truly, in the biblically-based sense, patriarchal society. And, you know, you reference the passage in, in Dealing with Ahab, you know, one of the things he says, I, I think you've mentioned this, is I will not give you this land. I will not betray my, my fathers, my forefathers, and my progeny because this, he didn't say this, but the implication was this is an inheritance that I pass along to my children and to their children's children. And so this is the true evidence of a Bible-based society. And, and Rush points out this was a recovery of full or biblical faith. I'm not going to say Old Testament religion because the whole Bible is a part of this. Uh, we don't have, we have two testaments in our Bible, but it's essentially one eternal covenant that God makes with his people. It changes and becomes, you know, varied slightly through history, but it's the same covenant. You know, you obey me, you'll be blessed, you'll be prospering. Your job is to, as a family, spread my kingdom throughout the earth. And we'll talk in a little, in a little bit about how that looked on the ground in Geneva and why it really became a place, uh, of, I mean, for lack of a better term, a paradise for women. I mean, that maybe doesn't have quite the same meaning today as it may have been then. I'm not really sure. But when you consider the, the position of women in a pre-Reformation Christian Europe and compared to what the Bible says ought to be the place of everyone in the family, It certainly did look like a massively major improvement in life.
1: We have to remember that God created man in his image, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, with dominion over the creatures, not with dominion over each other. Men and women together in families were to be God's representatives, ambassadors, and although they had different roles, one was not superior to the other but some people will say, well, women have to submit and men don't. Well, the Bible does say women are to submit to their husbands, but it also says that husbands are to submit to the Lord. So as long as we're looking for what's the best deal for me, what perspective elevates me, whether I'm a feminist, or I'm a masculinist, or I'm a feminist who wears trousers because I like the idea of not having to be responsible, so we'll let the feminists get what they want sort of thing. So biblically, we don't have an atomistic family. It's not mom and dad and the kids. What we have is a trusty family, which means that the family, as God's first and primary institution, can be a viable safeguard against the church and the state. In other words, all three institutions are ordained by God, but because God doesn't give ultimate authority and power to any one institution, they're all under God. And so today what we see is what we used to have is an atomistic family, mom and dad and the kids, that I think would be, what we'd have to say when television came on board, that's what we saw. We didn't really see the trustee family. And so once you get rid of the trustee family, and then you just have the atomistic family, it's not too long before, you know, do we really need dads? Single motherhood is okay. I can do it. I am woman, watch me roar, you know? So what we have bought into as a society is that it's better to be individualistic than be part of a strong, stable, and godly order called the family. So feminism, male chauvinism, whatever you want to call the supposedly different sides, they're really different sides of the same coin, making the family of less importance in God's economy and God's plan.
0: Yes, and there have been over the decades, especially in uh, these United States, various attacks Some of them sneak attacks, some of them overt attacks on the stability and the influence and the place of the family in God's law order. One of the most memorable statements that, at least for me, I heard Dr. Rushduni say in that memorable interview on on the PBS show with Bill Moyers concerning God and politics, which he did, I think, in the mid-1980s. Moyers was quizzing him about the death penalty for various uh, crimes mentioned in God's law. And the thing that Dr. Rastuni pointed out to him is that all of these criminal activities, these immoral activities that required the death penalty upon proper uh, adjudication and conviction were treasonous acts against the family. And he pointed out that the scriptures know nothing about treason against a country or against the state. Uh, the only treason recognized in scripture is treason against the family. And that emphasizes, therefore, the centrality and the importance of a family life and family living. And I think in a in a way of coming back round to the issue of what I mentioned at the beginning, is some of the things that were going on in semi-pagan Europe, and of course at the time of the Reformation, Europe was largely Roman Catholic, which is another way in my mind of saying semi-pagan. You know, m- much of the influence of people and, and their daily lives had not been affected one bit, either by biblical faith or even by traditional Christian faith as the Catholic Church had promoted it, and so a lot of the old ways of paganism continued. But the things that were going on, as it relates to women, these were a treasonous to the family because of the things that were happening, and I, I guess today we would say that uh, Calvin was somebody who was interested in and protective of the rights of women, but from a biblical standpoint and not from the standpoint of you know some pro-feminist you know, Gloria Steinem or somebody like that, and he gives several examples. And he says in the essay that under Calvin's guidance, the sessions of the the boards of elders of the churches in Geneva very aggressively prosecuted men who abused their wives, whereas before it would not have been done. I remember reading many years ago, someone referring to the attitude was it was a popular poem or saying, a wife, a dog, a mulberry tree, the more you beat them, the better they be. That was the attitude of, of many, of some men at least. I don't, I won't say many, but far, too many at, at best. And uh, he also pointed out that, and in, in, uh, Doctor Restuni did that in, in Geneva, that these uh, boards of elders, these church government officials, they prosecuted guardians who had misappropriated the funds of widows and orphans. So you had, you know, very evil people whose uh, they could care less about what Scripture said about any of the, uh, the place of a woman or a, a widow or an orphan and they saw it as an opportunity to enrich themselves and and probably one of the most uh, remarkable and uh maybe astounding things that he mentioned that were that was happening and that the the biblically based sessions and boards of elders were attempting to deal with is is that there was one case he mentions in the month of January 1557 the presbytery or the consistory he uses the term consistory records and, uh, indi- indicate records indicate that the church dissolved a marriage between a woman of more than 70 years of age with a man who was 27 years old. And the implication was that this was something that was contracted for not any kind of valid reason other than something underhanded. Or monetary gain. Exactly. Yes.
1: So one of the things that I hear you say, and the scripture says over and over again in both testaments, is that true religion, undefiled, is caring for widows and orphans in their distress and to keep yourself unspotted from the world. Well, women, clearly, despite what modern, I don't know, sociologists, commentators are going to say, are really different than men. Anybody who sees how a woman's body has been made by God, how it differs from a man's body, and then specifically that only women have been given the privilege of reproduction in the sense of they carry the child for somewhere near nine months before the child is born. So, women are the nurturers, but even Paul talks about them as being the weaker vessel, not because they're stupid, but because obviously their bodies are not as strong naturally as a man's would be. So, by protecting women, by recognizing their God-given status as equal members of the covenant. Remember, Paul says there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female. He isn't saying that there aren't differences in reality, but what he's saying is when it comes to the kingdom of God, when it comes to the covenant of God, there isn't preference one over another. And so by reminding people of what the scripture says, And when you mentioned going back to the Old Testament, even things like the dowry, which when people talk about the dowry, they miss the point entirely. The the dowry was actually to protect women and to capitalize women. And if you look at Proverbs 31, that woman was industrious. She worked inside the home. She worked outside the home. And the speculation, and I don't think it's a stretch, is that she had a dowry with which to be a successful business person. And this is all under the banner of the patriarchy. Why? Well, the last part of Proverbs 31 tells you she's doing all this enterprising work, so her husband can sit at the city gate. Now, when you become antinomian, then... The law of God doesn't matter. The dowry doesn't matter. The tithe doesn't matter. The prerogatives of the family in terms of actually approving a marriage. He mentions in this essay that nobody would be allowed to even consider marrying someone until the rest of the family vetted this person. Person shows up out of nowhere, seems like he's successful, he's good. He wants to marry your daughter. Uh, uh-uh. uh, we're going to figure out who you are, where you came from, because the transmission of authority from father to husband is a significant one. And so these are among the things you mentioned a couple. This as well is how women are protected. How many women end up in marriages with somebody who promised them one thing and had no intention of delivering it? But because we become so atomistic, all that's left for her is to go to the state for reconciliation or restoration or retribution.
0: Yes, and that's been one of the areas where the family has been subverted or attacked by the state with, in, with intent and purpose. The care of widows and orphans uh, used to be exclusively an activity of the church and Christian families. And at some point, you could go into the history some other time, how this changed, the state comes in and says, "Oh no, 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 we can do a much better job of that besides that, we're taxing you, so we're going to take your tax money and we're going to create this this plan and this program to deal with you know orphan children, homeless people, w- widows who need help, battered women, whatever the case may be and uh historically, as i said and and especially in a place like Geneva in Calvin's time, this was a place that women could find true biblical solace and comfort and care. Uh, He he mentions, and this is sort of something you were just referring to about women marrying and being promised things and not getting what they were promised or getting into something that's not exactly what they thought it was. And Dr. Verstini points out that, and he uses the phrase, strangers coming from a distant country. Well, they weren't allowed to marry anyone in Geneva uh, until there was what we would today call a background check. Their past and their family were, to use your word, vetted. And only after that would they be allowed to marry um, a citizen uh, of the city of Geneva. And he also points out that if a woman was in a marriage where, say, the husband was not a Christian and she was being harshly treated and persecuted for her faith, well, she could legitimately leave her husband. That is one area that found its way into the Westminster Confession of Faith, which some of us subscribe to. That is one of two grounds for legitimate divorce and remarriage. And he points out that that doesn't mean that everybody in Geneva, the the church leaders, the pastors, certainly not Calvin, were absolutely perfect in everything that they said and did in the cases involving women. But it's pretty clear compared to most places of traditional Europe, this was a paradise for a woman compared to how she had been treated. And I I think this is, again, an area where we often, we think about the Protestant Reformation, we think of the big doctrinal struggles, but one of the great, great blessings of the Reformation was the recovery of having the Bible apply to all areas of life. And the the traditional Roman Catholic scheme, where if a person was concerned about holiness and deep spirituality, well, off you go to the nunnery or the convent. That has nothing to do with day-to-day life in that scheme but not so in in the reformation with the recovery of biblical faith holiness becomes the the domain the object of every believer every person male or female young or old you know we each are called to be holy before god because of you know another reformation doctrine of the priesthood of all believers
1: and no one who's thinking would say okay reformation Whatever they said, hard stop. We don't have to go any further. We're always supposed to be reforming. The fact that you have flawed people, not fully sanctified, assuming that they're genuine believers, we're still not fully sanctified. It's important to have a standard with which to say, is this right? Is this wrong? The problem with antinomianism is it throws out the standard. And so you will have modern day pastors who will tell a woman. If your husband is straying, it's probably because you haven't given him what he needs sexually. Spice it up a little bit, get some sexy lingerie and bring him back. See, that's not scriptural. That's a way in which to make women think it's their own fault. Now, yes, there are errors in how this has been promulgated. But then those who want to take this and run with it and make it a Another tool in the destruction of the family will continue to talk about how oppressed women are and, you know, how they're not able to do the things that they want to do. But if you think about it, God created women to be vital and fundamentally important in terms of the propagation of the race of people. And so when you basically give women another major function, I'm not saying the only function because as Charles, I mentioned Proverbs 31 doesn't have someone sitting at home saying, honey, what should I do next? That's not what the Proverbs 31 woman is doing. But if we don't recognize God-given roles and the importance of those roles, then we're going to buy into how oppressed we are. You know, I was listening, you know, how sometimes on Facebook, something starts popping up and you didn't ask for it to play, but it plays. These yes. very successful actresses, all, you know, beautiful people are sitting on this round table and talking about how oppressed they are and how they don't get the kinds of roles that men get and that, um, it's not fair and we need to do something about it. Now, I happen to know these women, some of them have acted in films that are degrading to women. Why did they do that? Well, they got paid or I don't think they would have done it as a volunteer. So that's, I think, his initial point about slander shifts the ground. And so instead of saying, my husband, my grandfather, my father-in-law embraces his role as patriarch, you say that today and most people might think, oh, does he really give you a hard time? Are you being oppressed? How can we help you? (laughs) As opposed to how we mean the word and then how the world means the word.
0: You know, one of the challenges we face in the recovery of true biblical faith, in this case in the area of relations between the two sexes and family life, is that there are shades of these things that have secular counterparts. And so when we start talking about some of this, somebody may want to jump to the conclusion, oh, well, now they're getting on the feminist bandwagon, they're promoting women doing this, that, and the other. It may sound like that to people who don't really understand what Scripture really teaches, and you mentioned Proverbs 31, as an example, as far as uh, the character and the, the mission and work of a woman, I remember when I and a few other clergy traveled to the Holy Land in 2009, we spent the first week in the Galilee area of uh, the northern part of the country, and we had a tour guide who was an Arabic Christian woman. And as we toured various places, one place that we were po- was pointed out to us was a place called Magdala, and our tour guide pointed out that that historically was considered to be the area where Mary Magdalene was from, and I believe, if my memory serves me correctly, and I realize this is, this may be along the lines of, well, it was on the internet, so it must be true. I heard it from an Arabic-speaking Christian, you know, tour guide, so it must be true. But I, I have no reason to disbelieve it. That Mary Magdalene was a businesswoman, and she might have something had have had something the equivalent of what we today would be call a salon you know, a hair salon or something like that, where she helped other women with how they looked and all that kind of thing. And I think it's accurate to say that among the people who supported Jesus in his ministry, and I mean financially, a number of them were women like that, and also later Paul. So just because it doesn't come out of 1952 America and leave it to Beaver and, you know, my three sons and all that kind of thing, those are where the distortions have come in. Th- those aren't examples of true biblical patriarchal families. They may be good things about some of the things promoted in that era of black and white TV, but let's never forget that the people who produced TV-, TV programs and movies, no matter how far back you go, were largely not Christian. And so they had no interest in promoting a solid biblical worldview. They may have promoted aspects of it, but the kind of portrayal of life that most of us who are old enough to remember uh, of life in those days just because it was an older time and there was more of a veneer of Christian faith over the cover of the society, that doesn't mean it was truly biblical. I mean, there was a time in many conservative communities and churches where, quote, women's ministry was preparing the potato salad on Sunday that you have the fellowship meal. And that was it. The scripture doesn't know anything about that. And women can have very significant ministries to other women in, in the churches. And so uh, I, I think that when true biblical faith is recovered, it looks kind of odd to people who've been walking in areas where it has not existed or has been obscured. And I think one of the most important things that Dr. Rustini points out in this article goes back to what I said earlier about how holiness becomes now the project of every person, not just somebody who's going to be a priest or a nun in the old sense. But he points out that when, when we talk about holiness, it is connected unavoidably with the Old Testament and with the law, because the law and the Older Testament and these writings are concerned with day-to-day living and how the Ten Commandments are applied in everyday life. And so this means especially how we live in terms of the family and hu- as husbands and wives and men and women.
1: And no doubt, to your earlier point, they made some really good mayonnaise and potato salad, and and, <laughs> and, it, and it would tasted good. But why did they have that skill? Because they were raising families and they would feed their families. You know, I think the greatest training for any job you might have, aside from, you know, having to know the particulars of, you know, how to set a bone if you're in medicine or how to construct a house if you're a builder, is being part of a family. Father is the provider, the mother as the nurturer. And we see it today in terms of homeschooling families that oftentimes they give up the quote unquote two incomes in order to commit to their families. But one of the greatest trainings for women, and I can say this personally, is being a mom, having to deal with gazillion things at one time and trying to be faithful to scripture in the process. Now, do we always succeed? No. But in actual fact, I have been offered jobs. I remember one time the choir that I was the administrator for had some people come from the local symphony and they were gonna you know play with the home school choir. There was a connection there. And afterwards the celloist came up to me and said, You know, San San Jose Symphony is looking for an administrator. I'm going to recommend you. And I said, Huh? She said, Oh wow, you did just such a great job. I said, Well, I'm sorry, I already have a more important job than that. And she looked at me and she goes, oh, what is it you do? And I said, I'm a mom and a wife. And then of course she rolled her eyes and dismissed me. But (laughs) in actual fact, that is why men should honor women. That's why the door should be opened. Not because the the woman can't open her own door. For goodness sakes, if you're a mom with any number of kids, you're opening doors all the time. It's a way to say, We respect what you do. And I remember in earlier days, if somebody opened a door for me, I got real snarky and saying, I'm perfectly capable of opening the door myself, or somebody got up and wanted to give me their seat. Now I say yes, whether or not I want to sit down because somebody is showing honor and respect as God says that women should be honored and respected. It used to be when I was in a work situation and men were telling foul jokes and they go, Oh, we can't say anything because Andrew is here. And I would go, Oh, no, no, you know, that's okay. Fine. And I think, wow, they respect me so much. They'll tell that joke in front of me. Well, <laughs> once I came to faith, I realized that was not the case. And then afterwards I would say, when they would say, Oh, we can't say that because Andrew is here. I'd say, thank you. I appreciate the fact that. Your good sense is kicking in. So this idea that those who agree with that wives should submit to their husband in the Lord are somehow losers or weak couldn't be farther from the truth.
0: Some of this, um, the, the problem that people have in understanding these things has to do, obviously, the way that the, the situation has been distorted in a humanistic society. And the the truth has been retold or the narrative has been shaped to fit a particular agenda. I recall uh, as a much, when I was a boy, really, my parents had gotten me a set of, well, they had purchased for our family a set of world book encyclopedias. That's just like the early 1960s edition. And I used to spend hours going through these different volumes, looking at the pictures, reading the articles as, as best I could. And one of my enduring memories It was a picture of this kind of spinster-looking elderly woman with a black dress on, and in one hand she had a hatchet, like a a, you know a hand axe. The other hand she had a Bible. Can you guess who it was, Andrea? No, who? Carrie Nation. So Carrie Nation was one of the leaders of the prohibition movement. And, you know, the image that she had is that she would, you know, go into saloons and bust everything with her her little hatchet and run the men out of there because they were, you know, the the women were the carriers of uh, the moral standards and the men were all drunkards and evil. And, I mean, that was sort of the image that they that she was portrayed, this sort of sour puss woman who didn't want any guys to have any fun. I found out many, many years later, I mean, whenever I'd see that picture, I thought about Carrie Nation, which nobody really knows who she was anymore, but they should. That was sort of the thing that was ginned up in my mind. Many years later, really not that long ago, probably 10 years ago, I came across a book that was uh, published, and it was something like The Unauthorized History of the United States or something like that, and the title caught my attention, so I got this book, and I was really stunned because what I found out was this, the reason that the prohibition movement you know, the the, the, the desire to, to ban the sale of alcohol in the United States because of the problems of what we today call alcoholism and drunkenness was led primarily by, by women. And what I found out from this book was the fact that in many big cities in the early history of the United States, and I mean like say when Philadelphia was the big city and, you know, the, the main city uh, in, in addition to New York City, but especially Philadelphia at a certain time, you had big churches. Anglican churches, Baptist churches, but right next to them during this era, you often had brothels and houses of prostitution, and that had a lot to do with the drinking that went on, and so what these women were getting concerned about was not that their husbands were going to bars getting drunk, but that they were going to brothels and getting drunk and cohabiting with these prostitutes and bringing venereal disease home. So there was a legitimate concern on the part of many of these women about the protection of their own health and their own lives and that of their families. So this is another way that the reality has been distorted by a a humanistic narrative that wants to safeguard a uh, stepping away from true biblical faith and morality. And so we should always remember that if the Bible is going to be the foundation of how we live and act, then that enjoins certain actions and ways of living on both sexes, and we all have responsibility as men and women, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, to discharge our duties in those roles that would be pleasing to God. Now, if we don't know what those are, in other words, if we are antinomian, as you mentioned earlier, we don't know what God's standards are for those things, then we're going to have to be knocking around looking for examples, and unfortunately, they'll be coming from whatever our humanistic society puts forward to us at the time.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So I'm going to read the concluding paragraphs. I started with reading the first paragraph of this position paper. Rush says, when we depersonalize the problems of men and women, we also depersonalize ourselves. We reduce people to mathematical ciphers whose answers lie in acts of Congress or Parliament. We deny Christianity and Christ in favor of the state and its social workers. Calvin in Geneva gave us another answer. But for many today, Geneva could not have been the paradise of women. After all, Geneva had no equal rights amendment or law or Title IX. He doesn't say Title IX, but I just threw that in there. Right. Paul tells us, however, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And it is the spirit who gave us the law and the gospels. If we do not seek our answers in the Lord and his word, we are a part of the problem. And that's the sobering message. Even though this was given in 1988 as his position paper, it still holds true today. We must seek the authority of our thinking, what we think, what we think the solution should be to the word of God. Otherwise, we've gone rogue and we tried to look for the best humanistic solution that's around. It's never a solution. It just creates more problems.
0: We have tried to stress this in our podcasts. I think, especially recently, but you know, going back to the very beginning when we started these some years ago, that at that point where you are, you have turned away from biblical truth, where you have substituted something else other than God's law, word. That's the weakest link. Remember that TV show, the Weak- weakest link, or, or you know, just the the phraseology itself. Right. You, know, it, you, you could have a, a powerful, powerfully strong chain link, but if you've got one link that's weak, the whole thing is not going to work. And it's the same with this. We, we can have all the I's dotted and the T's crossed in terms of uh, systematic theology and doctrine and all the rest of it, but if it doesn't really do anything other than give us an academic exercise, then that's not being faithful to Scripture, and we're compromised. And we wind up with a society that has no idea what it means to be a man or a woman or a husband or a wife.
1: Exactly. I I hope we've whetted people's interest. You can find this position paper and the rest of the position papers that Rush Dooney wrote in the three-volume set, An Informed Faith. And it's one of those books or series of books that you don't necessarily have to read it from the beginning to the end, otherwise you'll miss something. These are his essays or his position papers, I should say, that have been arranged topically And all you have to do is go to the table of contents or go to the index and find something that you have a question about or you'd like to know more about and go right to that particular one. His his interest in applying the faith to all of life is evident in his writings. And as many people say, and I know you've heard this, Charles, he could have written this yesterday. Now, Hmm, it, it says on the top, 1988. And he went to his reward in 2001. So really, we know he could not have written it yesterday, but it's so pertinent. And in the truest sense, he could see the implications of antinomianism. He could see the implications of Arminianism. We decide we're Christians as opposed to we're called by God, that we are utterly depraved apart from God's grace. He could see what would happen to cultures specifically our culture, when people forgot the truth of Scripture. And that's why I think a lot of people are saying, wow, I've got to know more, because deep down inside, they know there's a problem. They're looking for where's the solution. And good old R.J. Rush Juney says, it's been in the Bible all along.
0: Well, and just to wind up, I would encourage our listeners to take advantage of the end-of-the-year sale that the Calcedon Foundation is promoting right now, I mean, you, you can read just about everything online at the calcedon.edu website, but now is a good time to avail yourself of hard copies, paperback or hardback of these resources that we mentioned, including an informed faith, because there's an excellent discount available. I'm not trying to give our friends in Vallecito any extra work, but uh, <laughs> we, we both agree that what this man has written on these all these various topics needs to be given to a wider audience. And this is a good opportunity for people who have an interest in that to uh, avail themselves of those resources.
1: And like you, I'm more in favor of hard copies. I like holding the book and marking it up and being able to refer back to it. But a lot of his work is available on in digital format. And a lot of his books have been put into audio format. So there's no excuse. I mean, as yet, we haven't provided people with mailing readers so that somebody can come to your house and read it to you. But uh, <laughs> yeah. that's one of the things that we do in our house. When we want to go through a work together, You know, we read it aloud to each other so that we can have a discussion. And so not only are we reading the word, but we're hearing it as well.
0: Excellent.
1: Out of the Question podcast at gmail.com is how you reach us. And we'll talk to you next time.
0: Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.